women who make the whole range of conscious and unconscious choices, or choices are made for them, about becoming an actual mother. So, using Chodorow's thesis of the reproduction of mothering, in this paper, I wish to explore how women's relationships with their own mothers influence their attitudes towards motherhood in Britain in the latter decades of the 20th century. And I want to think about the transfer of knowledge that took place at both the conscious level, for example, in the practical help and support that mothers offered their daughters in respect to maternity, infant care and child rearing, but also at an unconscious level through the uh, models of motherhood that they presented. And by analysing the accounts of mothers and daughters, I hope to demonstrate the continued importance of the mother-daughter relationship in the intergenerational transmission of attitudes and practices. Drawing on the work of Margaret Mailer, Chodorow proposed in her seminal work, The Reproduction of Mothering, which was first published in 1978, that because mothers treat their daughters and sons differently, they in turn develop differently. Daughters who share a core female identity with their mothers are encouraged to imitate them, while sons are expected to be separate and autonomous. During the Oedipal conflict, the daughter remains in an attached relationship, which ideally suits her for adopting the caring and nurturing responsibilities of the domestic sphere. And the son, on the other hand, turns away from his mother and towards his father, whom he sees as more (coughs) worthy. He adopts the competitive traits which were suited to the powerful public sphere. While Chodorow acknowledges the importance of the outside world in shaping their experiences of motherhood, she ultimately concludes that women come to be mothers because they have been mothered by women. Chodorow's work was taken up by the women's movement as the most competently theorised new writing on mothering, but it was also deeply controversial. And Chodorow was criticised for her presumption that families were healthy, white, western and middle class, with a strong, rational father at the head. However, as Judith Lauber has noted, Nancy Chodorow's earlier works paid more attention to the sociology of gender. For example, in a 1974 article entitled Family Structure and Feminine Personality... (coughs) Chodorow explained that she was attempting to rectify certain gaps in the social scientific literature and contribute to a reformulation of psychological anthropology. And she continued, Most traditional accounts of family and socialisation tend to emphasise only role training and not unconscious features of personality. Those few that rely on Freudian theory have abstracted a behaviourist methodology from this theory, concentrating on isolated, significant behaviours like weaning and toilet training. This paper advocates instead a focus on the ongoing interpersonal relationships in which these behaviours are given meaning. 
And it's this acknowledgement that girls are socialised into becoming adult women within the family, combined with an attention to their psychological development as mothers, that I will employ today. I think that the concept of the reproduction of mothering is a particularly useful analytical framework when thinking about the transmission of ideas about maternity. Women's behaviour as mothers is shaped by that of their own mothers. As Chodoro herself noted, a woman's relation to her mother becomes entangled in and even constitutive of women's desires to become mothers and the quality of their maternal effects and identifications. And she continues, Many women may experience what, it feel, what feels like a drive or biological urge to become mothers, but this very biology is itself shaped through an unconscious fantasy and effect that cast what becoming pregnant or being a mother in terms of a daughter's internal relation to her own mother. So, using Chodoro's thesis of the reproduction of mothering, as I've just been outlining, while also trying to remain sensitive to its limitations, I hope to examine here how women's relationships with their own mothers influence their attitudes towards motherhood. My paper's based on the results of um, about 70-year-old history interviews with women about their experiences of motherhood in Britain during the late 1960s, 1970s and 1980s that I undertook um, whilst the Levy Hume um, Early Career Fellow at Warwick. The women were, uh, interviewed were evenly distributed among different locations um, in Berkshire and Oxfordshire, mainly in Oxfordshire, but I um, had a couple of locations in Berkshire as well for a comparison, um, and a range of different types of community, including rural, urban and suburban. And the interviewees were principally found through women's and community groups and local media. And the sample was self-selecting. I mean, all the women had volunteered to be interviewed. But I wanted to try and construct a sample that ranged in age and class and educational background. And by analysing the interviewees' accounts of their lives as both mothers and daughters, I hope to demonstrate the continued importance of the mother-daughter relationship um, in the second half of the 20th century and the intergenerational transmission of knowledge of and attitudes towards maternity and childcare. So, girls learnt how to be a mother in the home. Girls, rather than boys, were expected to help with housework and to emulate their own mother's domestic role. Margaret was born in 1944 in Romford, in Essex. Her younger brother was born five years later. And discussing whether they helped in the home when they were growing up, Margaret said, When I used to help with the hoovering, help with the washing, I always went shopping with my mother. She used to ask me to work with her, I think, when we were doing housework. I don't mean to say I was Cinderella or anything, but I just felt that because I was the girl... I was expected to do the domestic stuff, and my brother never was. It was not only through contributing in household chores 
that girls learnt what was expected of adult women, though. As Sally Alexander has argued of girls growing up in the interwar years, they watched their mothers and fathers and learnt what it meant to be a woman. And women growing up in the decades after World War II also learnt what was considered to be the appropriate behaviour of adult women from their mothers. Tara was born in India in 1954. Her parents were part of the Anglo-Indian community there uh, before moving to London when she was 18 months old. She was the second youngest of four children and the only girl. And recalling the birth of her younger brother in 1957, she said, my first significant memory is his birth. And I remember helping my mother bathe him and push him around in the pram and all of that. And Tara not only witnessed what it meant to be a mother, but was encouraged to participate in the mothering of her brother. It was at home that she learned about the division of labour in the family with breadwinner husbands and homemaker wives, so dominant in post-war British culture. And she continued by explaining, I think my earliest impression of what it was to be a woman was to be a mother. That's what I remember. Mum has the baby and it's literally holding the baby and Dad's out there doing something called work. Discussing growing up, Tara explained that it was in the family that she learned what her expected future was to be. She told me that there was a large, a great deal of pressure for the female role, expectation that you would get married quite likely, and that was a substantial part of your future. However, it was not just from her mother that these ideas were disseminated, and she told an anecdote about a conversation with her father to illustrate this point. I remember being with my father when I was a little girl and talking about the future, and he said, oh, one day I'll have to give you away. And I was very alarmed. I thought, what do you mean? You know, be given to a jumble sale or something. Then he said, oh, no, that's what happens when you get married. So it was definitely there. You know, the daughter was expected to get married. Tara's account of her childhood was not unusual, and other women had similar stories to tell. Pippa was born in Paisley in Scotland in 1955, and her father was in the Navy, and her mother was a housewife. During Pippa's childhood, the family moved around the country, following her father's posting. She explained, My mother was very clear about her role within the house there was much more differentiation between my parents. And indicating the influence of her mother's mother's actions upon her own, Pippa said that despite ostensibly trying to live her life in a different way from her mother, she felt that in many ways she she replicated it. I think that there is still this element of being respectable and conforming to the model of motherhood that my mother had tried to present to me. Pippa felt she was constantly defined by her mother's conduct, not only in terms of her relationship with her children, but also of her husband. She's always been concerned about my husband being away all the time 
and always been absolutely horrified about the way I treat, supposedly treat him. There was a lot of nurturing of my father, to which I rebelled. You know, a lot of the arguments we had when I was a teenager was because my dad had the best of everything and had the best chair and was served first. And so I would rail against this. However, despite these tensions, Pippa also explained that she tried to please her parents. She spoke of how she felt she'd been encouraged by her parents at both the conscious and unconscious level to marry early at the age of 23 rather than living with her partner. She said, It's interesting that I wasn't prepared to upset them, really. And Pippa then continued by telling me how she tried to behave with her own children, indicating how these ideas about the different roles for men and women had been passed down the family, even if not intentionally. I don't think I made any distinction, not consciously, between them over household chores. But I think there is a gender difference. I think when they're home, there's always more of a feeling of a student flat about the place when the boys are here than when my daughter's here. Whereas the boys say, oh, I'll do it later. You know, if I ask her to do something, she will do it. As both Tara and Pippa's accounts indicate, women could find it difficult to reconcile the the model of motherhood they inherited from their mothers with their own hopes and desires. Kim was born in 1948 and grew up in Nottinghamshire, and she had one brother who was five years older. And Kim said she had struggled to combine the image of motherhood that her mother had shown her with her own aspirations for an education. Kim's mother had left university after a year and had not worked after having her children. And in consequence, Kim explained that she had no idea how on earth the two things squared up, going to university and having a career, and turning into my mother and being a good housewife with children. It was a gap in my understanding that I couldn't easily put together. Kim has always wanted to go to university, but was unsure what would happen next. She said she thought she would have a career of some kind, very unspecified, no idea what it would be, hopefully not teaching because I hated school so much, and that I would then somehow miraculously meet somebody, stop that bit of life, and I would start this other strand of life, which was me as a mother. Her mother had passed down a model of motherhood which she did not want to replicate, but neither did Kim know how else to be a mother. I didn't really like the model that my mother had given me, because the more I got into my teens, the more I was flabbergasted, really, by how passive my mother was. She hadn't a career. She'd left all that behind years before. And this difficulty of knowing how to be a mother was a subject of importance to Kim, and was one she discussed throughout her interview. Indeed, she expressed doubts over whether she managed to find a way of being a mother which enabled her to meet her different and sometimes contradictory needs. Furthermore, Kim continually used her own mother as a point of reference. 
For example, when at the end of the interview um, I asked whether there was anything else we had not yet talked about that she thought was important to her experiences, she returned to the subject of how she wanted to behave as a mother. And she said, Going back to this idea of the dichotomy of the career or the mother and knowing what I had about my mother being rather depressed and not wanting to be that kind of mother... I found myself as that kind of mother, and it was very difficult for me. So for women such as Tara, Pippa and Kim, the reproduction of mothering seemed to be an unavoidable process. They found that they'd come to emulate their own mothers, even when they were trying to carve out a new way of being a woman and a mother. And it was hard for them to break free from the example of motherhood that their own mothers had presented them with. And, as was indicated by Pippa's account of her relationship with her daughter, they could also pass on this model of motherhood uh, to their own daughters. However, as well as their mothers acting as role models of how to be a mother, mothering practices were also passed down the generations. And using language informed by psychoanalytical thought, whether or not they were conscious they were doing so, interviewees explained how they thought the desire to care came naturally to mothers because they were reliving their own childhood experiences. Susan was born in Norbury in 1940. An only child, she spent her early years growing up in her grandmother's house where the family had evacuated themselves during the war. Her father was in the military. He had joined the army as a boy and then remained in the services until he retired. And so Susan had moved many times during her childhood as she and her mother followed him around the country and also beyond um, to Cyprus and India. As a result of the family's transitory existence, which had made forming friendships difficult, And because she was an only child, Susan had experienced a very close and intimate relationship with her mother whilst growing up, and recalled helping her in the home. Interestingly, Susan then mirrored her mother's life by also marrying into the armed forces. Her husband was in the RAF, and her own two sons were born in 1971 and 1972. During her interview, Susan described how she thought knowing how to care for young children does come, you know, sort of more naturally than you think. Sharon was born in Prestatyn in 1944, after her mother had been evacuated from Liverpool. And Sharon's father worked in a dispensary in an eye hospital, and her mother was a housewife. She had one younger sister. Recalling the births of her own two children in 1972 and 1974, she said, Mum was very supportive, and she explained that her mother offered practical support and advice, which Sharon said she followed, but she was also emotionally supportive, uh, in that she respected Sharon's choices in how to look after her children. And Sharon contrasted her mother's approach with the mothers of other women she knew, telling me that mothers are very important, 
Because if they have completely opposite views to what you want to do, it's terribly difficult. And I breastfed, I wanted to breastfed, breastfeed, and mum was completely supportive of that. But you know, you used to keep meeting all these women who wanted to breastfeed, and the mothers would say, oh, why are you doing that? Give them a bottle. And Sharon felt she was influenced by her mother at an unconscious level as well. I think that when you look after your children, you probably are recalling how your mother looked after you. So if you haven't had a good mothering experience, I think it must be very difficult to know how to mother other children. And women whose mothers had not been around when they were young did speak of the difficulties that this absence could bring. Mm. Tina was born in 1945 and spent her early years in Portsmouth. Her childhood had been a difficult one. I had a mum and a dad and they split up. Then I was put in a home. Then I lived with my dad's sisters. Then work brought him to Cholsey and I was fostered out at Cholsey. But I couldn't say that it was very happy. Definitely not. Definitely not happy. And I don't often talk about it because it's too painful. And Tina felt that not having her parents around when she was little made it difficult for her when she married and had her own children between 1964 and 1971. She thought, that caused a lot of trouble as well, because I'd never been used to a mum and a dad to sort of have a role model. Other women whose mothers were not alive when they were raising their own children also spoke of the consequences of not having their mother present. When recounting her own birth, Kim told me, I don't know how many days I was in hospital, the nursing home. I think not many. And then I came home and my mother did breastfeed. But because she died when I was 21, which is before my own children were born, all these are questions that you normally ask your mother. However, Kim still thought she had tried to emulate her mother's child-rearing style, even though her mother was not there to ask for advice. For example, discussing family size, Kim explained that her dream was to mirror her own childhood experience. There would be two of us, two children, and preferably a girl and a boy, but we didn't manage that. But the two children was optimal. And similarly... Recording what happened when her first child was born, she again said she thought she may have been trying to recreate her own childhood experiences. I was home in two days and really then just had to get on because I'd made a decision to live as naturally. I mean, whether it was because my mother wasn't around and I wanted to kind of experience what she'd experience, I have no idea why it was, but I wanted that everything was done naturally so I boiled the nappies. Having their children could also make women feel a new understanding for their mothers. Hilda was born in Sunderland in 1942, but grew up in Wembley. She was one of four children, but her elder sister had died in infancy. Her father had been a regular soldier in the army, but died when she was nine and had been ill for some time with tuberculosis before his death. And Hilda's mother, therefore, had worked to support the family. And Hilda explained that it was having her own children in 1967 and 1970 
that made her realise what it must have been like for her mother. She said, I must admit I did not really, I did not appreciate my mother until I'd had my own children. And then I really appreciated all that she did and all how she managed. And throughout her interview, Hilda referred to her mother as being a supportive and influential figure in how she raised her children. Even though she was not nearby, as she continued to live in London while Hilda had moved to North Oxfordshire. And specific child-rearing practices were also passed down from mother to daughter, even if the mothers were not immediately at hand to learn from. So Hilda told me that she could not stand dummies. I can't. Probably it's left over from my mum. My mother couldn't stand dummies. And you do. You do inherit these things unknowingly or whatever. Gloria was born in Benson in 1939 and had lived in the village all her life. Unlike Hilda, she therefore had her mother living a few streets away when she had her two children in 1966 and 1969. And discussing how she had looked after her first baby, she said that something that she thought was very important was that babies needed regular time outside the house doesn't matter if it was winter or whatever. During the day for her sleep, she'd be outside. Both my babies wouldn't be in here, wouldn't be in her cot. She'd be in her pram outside under the plum tree, wrapped up snugly and warm if it was winter. And when I asked her why she thought this was so important, she answered, it was something my mum used to do, I suppose. Gloria was not alone in wanting to behave with her own children as her mother had done with her. Andrea was born in 1952 in London, the eldest of two girls. Her own children were born in 1978, 1981 and 1984. And when asked whether she tried to be like her parents when she was bringing up her own children, she replied... Yes, I mean, a lot of people laughed how I still make my kids' beds, for example. I've still got two that live at home, and they say, oh, you spoil them. I say, no, my mother did that for me until the day I got married, and it didn't do me any harm. And it's just something mum and dad did for me, and I still do for my children. And when I spoke to my kids once about it, they said, no, if you turn into nanny and granddad, you'll be all right. And I thought, well, you know, I must be doing something right then. While some women recalled that they had adopted specific child-rearing practices in an attempt to be like their mothers, others, like Andrea, aspired to be like their mothers in their parenting ethos. Jean was born in 1959 in Morton and Marsh and grew up as part of a large extended family living in Cheltenham. At several points during her interview, Jean explained that she tried to be like her mother with her own children, born in 1987 and 1990. For example, when asked whether she had helped in the home when she was growing up, she answered, No. I mean, my mum was at home. I think she did everything. She did everything for us, which is what I do with my kids. 
And it's striking that at a point in her narrative when she said she tried to put her own ideas into practice, rather than following her mother's example, she ran into difficulties and ultimately turned to her mother. And she told a story about, how, uh, about weaning her son. I mean, I had fairly strict ideas of how I was going to bring my baby up. I remember I had all these healthy ideas, so my children ate rice with milk and no sugar and all the rest of it. I couldn't get my son to feed. He wouldn't take solids. So I was starting to wean him then. I remember ringing up my mother in floods of tears, and she came round with a Heinz baby food pot of chocolate. And, of course, he ate it in about 30 seconds. <laughs> so I think the lesson was learnt there. And this anecdote therefore supported Jean's overall theme, namely that mother knows best. And later in the interview, when she was discussing the differences between what it was like to be a mother when she had her children and for women today... She said that a lack of discipline was characteristic of modern parenting. And in contrast, Jean had always been very strict about bedtimes and pretty strict on discipline as well. And when I asked her if that was also something she took from her mother, she answered, Absolutely, yes. It's funny because I brought my children up very much as I was brought up. They never took days off school sick unless they were so ill they could hardly get out of bed. But it's notable that she felt her sister had behaved in a very different manner. And she said, My sister has done completely the opposite. Her children are ill-disciplined. They've only got to say that they've got a headache or stomachache and they don't go to school. It's really bizarre. Mind you, I was always the goody-goody one and she was always the rebellious one. So there we go. But as Jean's comments about her sister indicate, not all women wanted to follow their mother's advice. In the same way that women who enjoyed a close relationship with their own mothers could try and consciously or unconsciously imitate their mother's behaviour with their own children, those women who had more troubled relationships with their mothers or who had doubts about their mother's child-rearing style could try and behave in a different way. Carmel was born in 1949 in Rochdale, and she had one older sister who was born in 1943. And while she did not present her childhood as unhappy, she did say it was um, very old-fashioned and described it as having more in common with the Victorians than it does with the 21st century. And when Carmel's own children were born in 1977, 1982 and 1985, she therefore wanted to behave in a different way with them than her mother had done with her. And she felt that the divergence between her own approach to childcare and that of the older members of her family caused a significant degree of conflict between them. She explained how, even my sister, whose children were, I suppose, a good ten years older than our lot, you know, she'd had a completely different style. And they felt, probably my mother less than anybody, but they did feel a bit challenged by it all and tended to say, oh, you can't. Breastfeeding on demand, don't do that. 
And in part, Carmel's desire to do things differently represented generational change. However, as Julia Brannan and Alan Nilsson demonstrated in their study of intergenerational transmission of fathering practices, mm. generational change does not have to imply generational conflict. One of the fathers they interviewed said that what was transmitted from his family was the freedom to choose to live his life in a different way to his parents' generation. And likewise, I think it's of note that Carmel felt that her mother was actually more supportive of her decision to parent in a different manner than were other members of the family. Generational change between mothers and daughters was commented on by a number of women. However, it's interesting that some women felt that their own generation was the first to break with attitudes of the past, while others felt it was the generation of mothers today. Harriet, who was born in 1955, was a twin, and her mother was also a twin, and Harriet had twin boys in 1986. And she thought that she'd taken a far more active approach to her pregnancy than her mother, who'd been resigned to her fate. Harriet explained... I mean, she stayed in hospital five or six weeks. She was blissfully unaware of why. I mean, she just kind of had this idea, you know, of what was going to be happening. But she said, I just didn't want to know what will be will be. And I said, but didn't you ever ask the doctors? No. Well, you know, the doctors know best. You leave everything in their hands. And I think that was the attitude then. My mum just thought, okay, you know, her mother had twins and they were really tiny and they'd survived. And my mum was going to have twins and they survived. And, you know, the doctors will do the right thing. And I think there's less question of things. My mum just blithely carried on with it. In contrast, when discussing why she'd chosen to have a natural birth, she explained it was because she decided, I'm not just going to go along with what the doctors say. Unlike Harriet, however, Hilda thought it was today's generation of mothers who were breaking the chain. And she said, well, fashions change, don't they? I think we relied perhaps more on our mothers for guidance. And I think, as I say, they're a lot older than mothers these days. And obviously they've been out working for a number of years, so they're kind of independent. So A, I don't think they'd ask for help, and B... Even if they did, it would be, well, we don't do it that way, Mother. Well, you know, it worked for us. It worked for our mums. But you can offer the advice. They don't have to take it. Hilda presented her own generation as trying to replicate the behaviour of their mothers, whilst whilst women today did not. Sandra's account of continuity and change in mothering practices that occurred down the generations reflected the ambiguities and tensions that existed. Sandra was born in London in 1950 and she was one of three girls. Her own children were born in 1976, 1979 and 1982. And discussing her daughter-in-law, Sandra indicated that she felt women learnt how to mother from their own mothers and would replicate their mothering practices. She said her daughter-in-law didn't breastfeed for very long 
She only breastfed him for six weeks. She wasn't enjoying it. Her mother didn't breastfeed. However, Sandra then went on to say that she herself had behaved in a different way to her own mother by choosing to breastfeed her children. She said, My mother only breastfed for a couple of months, and then she smoked. They used to smoke during pregnancy then. And Sandra also added that rather than seek the advice of her mother, she did quite a lot of reading when I was pregnant. I read Hugh Jolly, a great book, Penelope Leach, and I went to quite a few lectures and things up at universities. And Sandra was not alone in indicating the contradictions and ambivalence that were inherent in the mother-daughter relationship. Recalling the difference between her own and her mother's approach to baby care, Pippa told me, she has said things to me like, oh, you expected to just sort of leave you crying, you know, from that regimented view of childcare. And in contrast, Pippa said, I never could, I had to pick him up. However, Pippa also wanted to defend her mother and stated, but I think she was, she was and still is a very loving mother. And Cynthia, um, who was born in Kettering in 1957, uh, the eldest of two children, when I asked her whether she tried to be similar or different from her parents with her own children, replied, Yeah, that's a good question. Let me think. It's hard to say. I suppose my mother was a stay-at-home sort of mum, certainly for the first eight or nine years. So there wasn't really a sense in which I was trying to be like her because our lives were just so very different. I mean, certainly I felt that my parents were very good parents. So in that respect, I tried to model myself on them a bit. So, using Nancy Chodorow's thesis of the reproduction of mothering... In this paper, I've tried to show how attitudes towards motherhood and mothering practices were passed down from mother to daughter over the generations. Women learned what it meant to be a mother from watching their own mothers. In part, this transmission of mothering could take the form of women inheriting their mother's attitudes or behaviours in relation to specific childbearing practices such as infant feeding or child discipline. In some cases, the transfer of knowledge had occurred during the women's own childhoods as they had helped their mothers in the care of younger siblings. However, their mother's influence was also felt at a broader and more diffuse level. It was through through the example of their own mothers that girls learnt how adult women were expected to behave. And these representations of motherhood remained deeply influential upon their later lives. And what is interesting is that this held equally true for those women who said they tried to imitate their mothers and those who rejected the model of motherhood their mothers offered. Women used their mothers as a point of comparison in order to define themselves. Those women who did not have their mother around when they were growing up or when they were raising their own children still recalled their mothers as being influential 
even in their absence. And this analysis of the interviewees' accounts of their experiences of motherhood in the later decades of the 20th century therefore revealed the importance that women themselves attached to the transmission of motherhood through the mother-daughter relationship. And it indicates that women themselves thought that they came to be mothers because they'd been mothered by women. That's it. Thank you very much.